Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. The blade itself incites to deeds of violence. So wrote Homer in the Odyssey nearly 3,000 years ago. What Homer was tapping into all that time ago is the belief that mankind seems hardwired to fight, and particularly, but not exclusively, men. If people are given a weapon, so the thinking goes, they'll naturally want to use it. Just this morning, my young son was playing with a toy hammer, and when he was done bashing his construction set with it, he immediately set off to bash his younger sister instead. And I bet at some point you found sticks in the forest, and sure enough, started sword fighting with them. Even when the Christmas wrapping paper has run out, and all you're left with is the hard cardboard tube, you can almost guarantee someone's getting bonked on the head with it. Obviously, this is all playful. But some psychologists say that the threat of violence is ever-present in male relationships. That it governs those relationships, if even on a subconscious level. And there may be a ring of truth to it, given just how easily fights can break out over a woman or an insult, or if one man happens to drive his car faster than another man. When protests turn to riots, sports fans turn to hooligans, or diplomacy turns to war, psychologists say it's the slipping of the cloak of civilization, the calming norms of society falling away as our more primal instincts take over. But it's one thing having a fight in a bar, and quite another going to war. To put your body and mind in the midst of flying arrows or shrapnel. To risk the hacking of axes or the sights of a sniper. To sail on an ancient Byreme or World War II era battleship, when there's a good chance you won't be coming out of it alive, is at best daunting, at worst mortally terrifying. But for thousands of years, people have done these things and continue to today. So far in this series, we've looked at nine of the most powerful motivators for war that exist. Like the fight for resources, the yearning for freedom, or the desire for revenge. But what about the psychology of the individual? What makes everyday people risk life and limb by fighting in deadly combat? I'm Andrew McKenzie, and welcome to this, the final episode of our Why We Fight series, The Psychology of War. Many evolutionary psychologists agree with Homer. They say that fighting is in our DNA, that competition over resources and women have helped to imbue humans with an innate tendency to fight. And the stats support it. Of the past 3,400 years, it's been estimated that the world has been entirely at peace for just 268 of them. And the estimates for the number of lives war has claimed in all of human history top one billion. And what about the soldiers themselves? 
Do they have an innate tendency to fight? The answer might shock you. Across several wars, including the Boer War, both world wars, and the Korean and Vietnam wars, many veterans have described their experience of combat and killing as ecstatic, exhilarating, even orgasmic. And these emotions are set apart from the elation and relief of killing someone before they kill you. For some men, combat can be a truly enjoyable experience for its own sake. The thrill of extreme danger, the ecstasy of winning, the revelling in youth, strength and success. Some have compared it to the joy an athlete feels, the feeling you get when you're fast and powerful and everyone else around you seems slow in comparison. Hormonally, much of this will be down to adrenaline and endorphins flooding your body. Hormones like those feel great and they're meant to because they're addictive. It's one of the reasons many combat veterans find it difficult adjusting back to post-war peacetime. They constantly search for the same buzz that they used to get in war. And even though most men wouldn't describe their experience of war in the same way, indeed, a very great number would describe it as traumatising in the extreme. It's this sense of buzz and excitement that has motivated many a young man to go to war in the first place. There's an ancient conception that it's better to die in battle in the glory of your youth than to watch and feel your strength wither with age. Romantic notions of honour and glory have been added to the widespread sense of immortality amongst the young. That death is so incomprehensible that it's almost totally irrelevant to the decision about going to war. So you have, on the one hand, the ideas of honour and glory and celebrating your youth and strength, and on the other, almost complete indifference to the risks. No wonder, then, that 2.6 million British men volunteered for military service in World War I. And to prove the point, the vast majority of those were in the first half of the war, before the carnage was obvious. Once people began to see how many people were dying or coming home permanently wounded, any notions of romance and immortality were quickly dispelled. So drastic was the fall in volunteering that the British government was forced to use conscription from 1916 on for the remainder of the war. But heady and powerful as the mix of honour, glory, enjoyment and immortality can be, it's only part of the story about why people choose to fight. Many veterans also speak of the fear of letting your friends and family down, especially in wars of defence or independence. Firstly, there's the fear of what could happen to your family if the enemy wins. Death, rape and separation have all been common in history amongst the civilian families of the vanquished. People naturally feel they have to play a part in preventing that, and so go to war. 
But in all wars, humans also fight to achieve belonging and the increase in social status that can bring. In evolutionary terms, if Stone Age tribes went into battle without one member of their group, that member could expect to be ostracised, socially outcast, or even potentially exiled from the group altogether, which would be akin to a death sentence. By contrast, those who gladly go to war and excel at it can expect to be lauded as heroes. And that kind of social status can get you the girls, and therefore more children. So despite the pre-penicillin death rate in wars often exceeding a quarter or even a third of combatants, there was still a far better chance of survival and procreation in risking the fight than shirking it. Shirkers can expect lower social status even in relatively modern times. In the Vietnam War, for example, there was a belittling of draft dodgers from some parts of society who would treat them as pariahs. But it was also the Vietnam War which began to change that. Amongst the young in particular, there was such a widespread anti-war movement that it made draft dodging socially acceptable for the first time. Still though, the people Vietnam War veterans didn't want to let down were their brothers in arms, the men fighting next to them. This brotherhood of war has motivated men to fight for millennia. And you'll find stories speaking of it in any war with enough letters, diaries and interviews to shed light on it. Men often spoke of the bonds of brotherhood with other soldiers in their unit as being stronger than those they had with their wives. In fact, it often caused marital problems on soldiers' return because they were not experiencing the same connection with their spouses. In combat, each soldier, sailor and airman puts their life in the hands of all the others of their unit. In ancient times, the Greeks developed phalanx tactics which saw them retain battle lines rather than angry screaming mobs rushing at each other. By staying in a cohesive formation, the Greeks could bring the weight of the whole unit to bear in a mass of spears. And what kept the unit together was the strict law which said that you and your shield should defend the man to your left, not yourself. In this way, the unit would stay unified rather than breaking apart into individual fights, because you would be abandoning the defence of your neighbour, and that was unthinkable. It meant the men had to, and did, utterly trust each other. It's been the same in many armies ever since. In the Roman legions, the shield walls of the Anglo-Saxons and Vikings, the tercio of the Spanish Empire, right up to the modern armies of today. So when you're fighting side by side with men relying on you, and you're sharing foxholes, tents and meals with them, treating each other's wounds and keeping each other warm in freezing temperatures. Bonds develop which veterans say are deeper than any other. And this, in the heat of battle, is one of the most powerful inspirations to fight there is. And some men seek out war for this very reason, because they yearn for brotherhood, belonging and connection 
which they lack in humdrum everyday life. Psychologist William James was the first to point out the positive psychological effects of war in his book The Moral Equivalent of War in 1910. He says that in addition to belonging and brotherhood, it also enables the expression of other human qualities which often lie dormant in ordinary life, like courage, self-sacrifice and discipline. Essentially, even in the face of death, it can make people feel more alive. And on a social or national level, warfare brings people together. It binds them with cohesion and a sense of a common goal. Expressions like the war effort inspire citizens to work together selflessly for the greater good and to endure hardships like rationing and bombed out towns and cities. It fosters, in short, a positive sense of group identity, which psychology tells us is one of the primary motivators of the human mind. Group identity is so powerful that it's also at the source of many of the conflicts of history, whether that identity is grounded in nationalism, religion, race or any other group. But it's group identity taken to its extreme which is the conflict bringer, rather than groups per se. There is a difference, for example, between patriotism and jingoism. The former is gentle pride in one's country, while being friendly and allied with any other nation. The latter, jingoism, is the aggressive manifestation of xenophobia, masquerading as patriotism but is rather extreme nationalism. Overt pride in a group can cause hatred and enmity with other groups, particularly when they compete for land, resources or anything else. Even worse, one of the most dangerous aspects of group identity is called moral exclusion. This is when humans withdraw moral and human rights from members of a different group, allowing them to see those people as less than human, undeserving of respect and justice. When that happens, as it has many times in the past, it becomes easy for one group to oppress, exploit or even kill other groups. The most horrifying example could be the Holocaust, the deliberate Nazi attempt to exterminate Jews and several other groups, including gypsies, homosexuals and the disabled. Jingoism, xenophobia and moral exclusion have all, sadly, compelled people to fight countless times throughout history. And there's a warning for us today in our increasingly polarised and vicious politics. It should go without saying that toleration and dialogue are keystones of pluralist societies. Disagree with each other, but don't lose sight of each other's humanity in the process. One of the other dangers of group dynamics is the radicalisation of usually young and vulnerable men into groups which call for the aggressive and violent overthrow of other groups, usually through terror attacks. The most stark of these is the suicide attack and the knowledge that there are some people who believe in their mission so completely that they are willing to certainly die in its cause. 
The reasons behind why people can do so are myriad. And of course, they differ between the kamikaze pilots of Imperial Japan in World War II and the suicide bombers of Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab or Islamic State. For the Japanese, motivations ranged from die-hard fanaticism and loyalty to the emperor, a deep-seated sense of the honour of dying for the empire, and a belief that they were sacrificing themselves for their families, protecting them from what they thought would be allied atrocities. After all, at the time, the mostly wooden Japanese cities were being systematically wiped out by allied firebombing campaigns. For Islamic extremists, the motivations are even more complex and varied. People are usually initially drawn by slick propaganda of the evils of the West, anyone non-Muslim, or of specific economic or social inequalities which they might be suffering from. Crucially, IS promises inclusion and brotherhood, and it's so often this which begins to develop a deep sense of loyalty between the radicalised and their abuser. They're subsequently indoctrinated into an extreme and warped version of Islam and sold visions of paradise for those who commit suicide attacks. Many of them suffer from poor mental health, narcissism, unusual levels of aggression, economic or social disadvantages or troubled childhoods. Finally given proper meals, respect, belonging and connection, these men and women end up so loyal to the cause that they would do anything asked of them, especially if it includes promises of a utopian afterlife. It's important to say, though, that not all suicide attackers want to die, but they're caught in a combination of Stockholm Syndrome and fear. They end up compelled to wear explosive devices and walk into crowded areas. It's a third party that then remotely detonates. But in either case, there are powerful psychological forces at play which intelligence agencies, social workers and governments are using to minimise the risks of radicalisation from early ages. While most people are not prepared to commit suicide for their cause, many are still prepared to die for it. Give me liberty or give me death, cried Patrick Henry, an American revolutionary in 1775. He stormed, Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? For Henry, life was not worth living if it was going to be without freedom. And thousands of Americans agreed with him many indeed giving their lives in the pursuit of liberty. And for religion, revenge, ideologies and resistance from occupation, many millions have willingly stepped up for war, well knowing the risks and disregarding them anyway. The calling of a higher purpose is a powerful motivator for individual men and women. And in most wars, you'll find a thread of purpose which acts as the Roman eagle, leading them on into bitter and often mortal fights. While it might seem that humans are destined to fight forever, the good news is that since the Second World War, 
global conflict and war-inflicted casualties have declined significantly. This doesn't mean that deadly wars aren't still occurring. The experiences of Syria, Ukraine and Yemen are testament to that. But in the big picture, things are looking much more peaceful. And there are some good reasons for that. It's been argued that, while terrifying, the nuclear deterrent has actually made warfare less likely, given how cataclysmic we all know it is. The growth of democracy has also been credited, as democracies are, in general, far less likely to go to war than totalitarian or authoritarian states. The dispersal of decision-making authority in democracies and the will of the people usually means a more cool-headed approach to tense international events, whereas hot-headed dictators or monarchs have often plunged their countries into war without too much thought. The work of international peacekeeping forces and the network of defensive alliances like NATO have also contributed enormously to a relatively stable world order as has the enormous growth of international trade and tourism. Greater connection to each other around the world has helped most of us realise the inherent and indisputable humanity in all, regardless of our nation, race or religion. All of these things have helped to put the brakes on international disputes dissolving into armed conflict. But let's consciously cherish that rather than grow complacent with it. It's our simultaneous determination to remain at peace, while maintaining a strong enough deterrent for war, which is driving conflict down. But sources of tension remain, as does human nature, which we have seen can be all too ready for a fight. I'm Andrew McKenzie, and this has been Why We Fight. For the last time in this series, Thank you for listening. See you soon.